In our survey through the Bible, we have made it to the last book in the Old Testament. Um, and so we're going to uh, take a break for Advent. We're going to do a few things, and back in, when we get back in January, uh, we'll start up the New Testament. But we've made it to the end of the Old Testament. And, and as we've gotten here to the end of the Old Testament, um, this last message could be seen as a very harsh message. Malachi's four chapters, it's really um, direct in its message, how it's delivered, uh, the way it's delivered, and the content is, is pretty direct. Um, he is basically telling this community at the end of the Old Testament narrative where God has been so gracious with the people and he's, he's demonstrated to them that, that you can't do this on your own and, and your patriarchs are going to fumble and these charismatic judges, they are not going to be the good leaders and the kings weren't good leaders and, and he didn't respond to the prophets. But God was patient with them all the way through all of that. You get to this last book and he goes, after all of that, you have hearts of stone. Um, and it can be a pretty harsh, direct message. But I want to start by encouraging you to hear this from a, a different perspective. It is direct, and there will be some things that will perhaps hit you between the eyes. But this message starts with God's grace and God's love. The very first thing he's going to say is, I've loved you. Um, now, they're going to protest and say, hey, how do we know that? And then God's going to say, but you've done this. And they, we did what? Yes, you did this. And you did this. And you did this. Um, but he starts off by telling them how much he loves them. Um, which reminds me of something that, that I say all of the time. The spiritual life of a believer is a response to the already present grace of God. So as you hear this harsh message, I want to remind you, that the message starts with God's grace and God's love. God loves you, so you should behave a certain way. And if you're not, remember how much he loves you. He loves you so much. He was patient. He took the entire Old Testament to get a nation ready so that they could have a king who would come and he would die for us. And then he's going to come back and he's going to establish his rule. God was patient through all of that, and that's been his plan. And the question is, given his grace, given his already present grace for us, how are we living our lives? It does not go like this. Straighten yourself up, and then you'll receive God's grace. That's not the, that's not the paradigm. Get enough rules and live by the rules, then maybe God will be happy with you. That's not it. The message of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, beginning to end is this. God is so gracious in how he has chosen us and been faithful to us and provided for us everything that we need. How could we do anything other than live our lives to him? The spiritual life of a believer, Old Testament, Malachi, New Testament, today. The spiritual life of a believer should be a response to the already present grace of God. And in the midst of hearing what Malachi is going to say, I want you to remember, God starts this message out with his love. Um, here's what Danny Hayes says to orient us to this. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, but it brings the Old Testament to a close with a comma, not a period. That is, Malachi points forward to the coming day of the Lord as he declares that the prophet Elijah will signal the inauguration of that day. We then turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, and soon John the Baptist shows up, whom the New Testament associates with this Elijah. Thus, there is very little break between the prophets, as concluded by Malachi, and the Gospels, which describe the fulfillment of the prophetic message. 
We've moved to the end of the Old Testament, and we're going to have a 400-year break. But that break at the end of, of Malachi really points towards what's going to happen initially in the Gospels. Um, there's a chart out at the uh, Connection Center that talks about what happens between the Gospels. And I'm going to have to go over this more by the time we are between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between Malachi and the Gospels. I'm going to have to talk about this some more as we get into the Gospels. But I just want to highlight, there are these two prophets who prophesied while the nation was in exile, Ezekiel and Daniel. Then we have our three post-exilic prophets. We've talked about Haggai and Zechariah, Malachi today. Um, and then there is this period of 400 years. I would describe it as he was there and he was not silent. God was doing things. We just don't have prophets who are preaching yet. During that period in between, a lot of world powers change. The Greeks become dominant and they, they convert the entire world to speaking Greek and living in their um, educational system. Then the Romans come and they push out the Greeks. Uh, the Romans establish peace with their army and the presence of the army that could travel on a road system. Um, all of that under God's control, preparing the way for the spread of the gospel, one language and a road system. Um, the Jewish nation changes quite a bit. Synagogues are developed. Um, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, takes place during that period. Um, there are synagogues that are spread all around where they are teaching this Old Testament truth. But then four parties kind of gravitate to the leadership in the Jewish nation. Uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. We'll talk about all of those guys. Um, all of that preparing the way for the coming of the New Testament. But there's about 400 years between Malachi and the, the first book that is written in the New Testament. Um, a lot's going on, but I, I want you to understand there's a clear connection between Malachi and the New Testament because Malachi kind of looks back and says, look at all that God's done for you. How can you still be living this way? But he's not finished, and it points toward what's going to happen in the New Testament. It's a great transition book, not a period but a comma in the storyline of what God is doing. This is the last of the pre-exilic or post-exilic prophets, the last of the post-exilic prophets. At the, on the um, website, I, I put this up there before the messages on Haggai, an introduction and some orientation to these post-exilic prophets. Today, I've got a bunch of stuff out there from Malachi. Uh, I've got a chart out there. Um, one of my mentors, Dr. Ross, has written a commentary on Malachi, so I've got a lot there on the background. He's got a summary of Malachi that's really good. Um, there's an excellent article on the message of Malachi by Joyce Baldwin. I'm going to read some of that uh, today. There are some themes in Malachi that are highlighted by Dr. Ross. It's, this is a powerful book. It is the most practical book in the Old Testament. It, it is just a fantastic four short, powerful uh, chapters. Um, and I went long first hour, so hold on. We're going to start going pretty fast here, okay? So Malachi is a harsh message that begins with the grace of God. So let's talk about what's going on in this message. Um, who is Malachi? We really don't know anything about Malachi, his parents, his ancestors, his tribal origin. His name Malachi means my messenger. And some people think maybe that's, he's not even a guy named Malachi. He's just the Lord's messenger. Um, that, that this is just saying the Lord gave a message to my messenger. Um, but it probably is that he really was a guy named Malachi. Nobody quotes him and calls him Malachi. Um, but it, the pattern is that the, the person who's named that way, it would have uh, been probably his name. Um, when was it written? Danny Hayes really helps us. Unlike Haggai, Malachi doesn't contain any historical superscriptions that tie his ministry to the reign of any certain king. 
Thus, it's difficult to date Malachi with precision. However, the situation that Malachi appears to address in his book seems very similar to the situation that Nehemiah encountered. If Malachi was indeed a contemporary with Nehemiah, then the setting for his book is about 430 BC, 90 years after Haggai and Zechariah. Let me put that together for you. Um, Zerubbabel comes back to build the temple, Ezra comes back with the people, and Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying during that time, Ezra's time. Now it's 90 years later, Nehemiah has come back to build the walls, and Malachi is going to prophesy during that time. Now let me describe what's going on, and you're going to see some pretty clear parallels to our day and time. Malachi appeared on the scene at a time when the euphoria of the post-exilic Jewish community following the rebuilding of the temple, the restoration of social and political life, was beginning to give way to cynicism in both sacred and secular realms. There was a period of, of high spirituality, people being very spiritually sensitive as they rebuilt the temple and they were dependent on God to, to protect them as they built the walls. But now it's been 100 years that's beginning to wane. The priests had, begun to, had become, begun to become corrupt in their official capacities as well as their private lives. The people had mingled themselves with the pagans around them by undertaking illicit marriages, pandering to false religious systems, and the nation as a whole had lost the ardor of messianic eschatological hope, focusing its attention on the mundane necessities and pleasures of the here and now. The focus had really changed from there's some spiritual reality that's at the center of our lives— Two, what's happening right in front of us, our day-to-day existence, that's the thing that we're focused on. Yeah, they're still showing up at the temple. They're still going through some motions, but that's not the center of their lives. Their, Their hope is not in what God is preparing. Their hope is in what they can get God to maybe cooperate with. And if God's not cooperating, we're going to take matters into our own hands. So who's the audience that Malachi is writing to? The original audience for Malachi's message would have been the residents of Jerusalem about 100 years after the return from exile, 90 years after the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. He's post-exilic. The temple has been completed, worship reestablished, and the people have rejected all forms of idolatry. That's one thing the Babylonian exile did. It It pushed idolatry out of them. But they're still struggling with the other two charges that the prophets have. Idolatry is one of them. That The exile took care of that. The other two charges that are going to show up in this book is uh, ritualism, just going through the motions, and um, social injustice. Your religion hasn't affected how you treat others, especially the widows and the orphans and the aliens in your midst. The temple's been completed, worship reestablished, the people have rejected all forms of idolatry. Now the massive issue of ritualism, unengaged in hypocritical worship, has become widespread among the people of God. They're not worshiping other gods, Baal, Ashtaroth. They're not worshiping other gods. But as they are worshiping, their hearts are not engaged. They're just going through the motions. And you may be saying, hey, but I'm here. That's not the question in Malachi. The question is, you're here, but is your heart engaged? Are you truly worshiping? Danny Hay says this about why Malachi was written. Some may have thought that this post-exilic return was the great and glorious restoration of the the earlier prophets had predicted. But the post-exilic prophets, Malachi, Haggai, Zechariah, disagree and remind everyone that the great day of the Lord lay primarily in the future, even though the return of the exiles could be viewed as the early beginnings of God's unfolding plan of restoration. Yes, God is still active But the fulfillment of God's promises still awaits the future. Do you care? That's the question. 
Do you care or are you just obsessed with what's happening in your day-to-day life? Here's my short version. Malachi is writing to address the hypocritical worship and lifestyles of the people of God who have forgotten his holiness and his loving grace. It's harsh. He's writing to say, you've forgotten God. He's going to be pointed. Your lifestyle and your worship is abhorrent to the Lord. But it's because they've forgotten the holy God and his grace. So let's look at the content of how this is all organized and all put together. Um, He starts with a call to say, I have loved you. And then he's going to go through these six disputes he has where he's going to say, here's what you did. And they're going to say, no, we didn't. And he's going to say, yes, you did. Six times they're going to go through that. And then at the end, he's going to say, keep your hope looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Um, Some people see this as a chiastic structure that begins with that reminder of God's love and a call at the end to hope. In the middle are these charges uh, of unfaithfulness and and, um, really not letting your lifestyle align with what your profession is. Um, I've got a chart out at the Connection Center uh, that puts all of this together. The guy who looks like Hagrid, that's really supposed to be John the Baptist kind of character. That's what I'm trying to do there. What's the message of Malachi? The Lord, through his messenger Malachi, presented six disputes the Lord had with the nation, declaring that they were merely outwardly religious, demonstrating only ceremonial obedience rather than genuine love and worship. Therefore, the nation would be punished if they didn't repent, and the Lord, announced by his messenger, would come to purify the nation in order to call them to repent and return to, the, to worship the Lord with a pure heart. He's calling them back to align their hearts with their profession. That's the issue. It's not that they were saying the wrong things. It's their heart were not aligned with that. And that could be seen by how they worshiped and how they lived in their relationships. So here's the pattern of the book. He's going to start off with an accusation. He's going to make an assertion. The first one is a positive one. I have loved you. But the nation's always going to push back on that, and they're going to say, really? They're going to protest. How have you loved us? And then what God is going to do with all of these, whether it's positive or negative, he's going to give the evidence that his assertion is correct. So let's look at the first one. And it's basically this, I've loved you. And the proof is my election and protection of you. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob and hated Esau, and I've made his, Esau's mountains, a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Their election and protection. He talks about the election this way. First of all, I love Jacob and I hated Esau. Don't let that bother you. Here's what that means. I love Dawn Wilson. She's sitting back there in the back. I love her, okay? That means I chose her. Okay, I chose her, I elected her because I loved her. All the other girls, I hate them. I do, I really, I hate them. All the other girls, I hate them. Now, all the other girls are just going, glad she ended up with that guy. Um, But I love her, meaning I chose her, and hatred is I didn't choose them. So God elected Israel. He elected Jacob, the descendants of Jacob, the nation of Israel, And he rejected Esau. He hated him. He rejected them. And then he judged them. He punished them. And when they were rising up to to attack the Israelites, God punished them. 
So his election and protection proves his love. Think about that for you. God chose you to be in his family. That proves his love. He continues to protect you and be gracious to you. That proves his love. And then he's going to say, if I'm a master, where's my respect? That's his assertion. You're not respecting me, says the Lord of hosts, O priests who despise my name. Um, and they're going to say, how have we despised your name? They're going to protest. We didn't do that. So here's going to be his, um, his assertion. You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? They keep going. God's saying, here's what you did. Oh, how, how did we do that? We're innocent. That's not what we really intended. But here's what he's going to say. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Here's what he's saying. You guys are offering not the best of what you have to the Lord. You're looking and you're finding the lame, the sick, the ones that wouldn't be good for you. And that's what you're bringing to offer to me. And then in his kind of pointed way, he goes, try that with your rulers. Um, is that how you would pay your taxes? If I've got enough left over, I'll give, the, I'll give the government a little bit. Is that how you're approaching this thing? Oh, that you were, uh, w- oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly k- kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Here's what he's saying. I don't want your stinking offerings. In fact, I'd rather somebody lock the door to the church than have a bunch of hypocritical people in here just going through the motions. It'd be better to not have anyone present. By the way, I think that's happening in a lot of churches where people aren't worshiping the Lord, where they're not teaching God's word. Those doors are being locked. They're being closed. (laughs) People aren't showing up. And, And some of it is people don't want to be there, but I think God's saying, what you're doing, I don't want anybody in there. And he tells them, I I don't want you lighting your fire for sacrifices for this lame stuff you're showing up with. But in the middle of all that, he says, but I'm going to do something really good. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered uh, to my name and a grain offering that is pure. And my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Here's what he's saying. One day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. You may not do it voluntarily, and I shut the doors, but one day, everybody's going to show up here, and they're going to worship me because I'm great, and I'm worthy of it. And then he talks to the spiritual leaders, the corrupt priests, guys like me. And now, this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then will I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already, because you're not taking it to heart. I mean, just look around um, at spiritual leaders in our country, those who have fallen and made a sham of spiritual leadership. God is saying, the things you're, you're trying to do, I'm going to curse them. He's going to go on. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuge on your faces. This is a harsh book. The refuge of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant uh, may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. You priests who are leading this, I'm rubbing your face in it. And you know, when they take the garbage out, I'm going to rub your face in it, and then you're going to go out with the garbage because you're leading the people astray. 
The spiritual leaders have fallen, and the spiritual leaders are not doing what they should do. For the lips of the priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction you have corrupted. The covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. The leaders are leading people astray. They should be teaching God's word clearly. But that's not what they're doing. Um, yesterday, I was trying to get to the, the dump as soon as it opened. So I was in my truck um, with um, some pumpkins and mums in the back of the truck, headed to the truck, trying to find something to listen to on the radio, and I couldn't find anything I wanted to listen to. And I ended up listening to a news station. And as I listened, they were interviewing two priests um, from a denomination that will be unnamed, asking them about Advent. And here's what they said. Advent is all about hope. And you know what our hope is? Our hope is taking care of the planet because that's really our hope. So we need to have green policies and take care of the... That's what the Advent Christmas season is all about, is the hope of taking care of our planet. Then they interviewed the next person and they said, yeah, um, Advent is all about the coming of peace. And that means inner peace and and self-care. So take care of yourself because that's where you get inner peace. So hope of a planet that will be taken care of and inner peace because of self-care. That's what Christmas is all about. Really? God is going to rub their faces in the refuge and take them out with the trash because they're leading people astray. Here's what Christmas is about. We couldn't solve this problem ourselves. God had to send his own son to take on flesh to come and die in our place. And then he told us, take that message around the world until I come back and establish my rule. That's what Advent is about. Advent, his first coming to save us, his second coming to establish his rule. That's Advent. Not Planet care or self-care? Now, should we take care of the planet? Absolutely. We're supposed to have dominion over it and care for it. Should we be people of peace? Absolutely. But that only comes when we align ourselves with God's purposes. i got to move on. Corrupt priests, corrupt marriages. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of foreign gods. You've married people who don't love me, and they're turning your hearts away. This is, there's another thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering and accepts it with favor from my hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Why are you doing this? Why are you not accepting our worship? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she was your companion and your wife by covenant. Your relationships are betraying that you're not faithful to the Lord because your marriages are corrupt. You're leaving the wife of your youth to find pleasure in the daughter of a pagan God who's going to turn your heart away from that. Your relationships with others really does reflect what you think about the Lord. And he's saying, you've turned away from the wife of your youth. Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you don't deal treacherously. Focus on your marriage. Make sure your marriage is strong. Your relationships in your life particularly your covenant relationships within your family, they should be strong and a reflection to the world of how God loves his people. That's what Paul's going to say in Ephesians chapter 5. He talks about marriage and, and a husband loving his wife and a wife submitting and respecting her husband. 
And he says, I'm talking about marriage, but I'm not really talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Because how you live in your marriage is a reflection to the world of what it's supposed to look like, how God's people relate to him and how God relates to his people. Marriage is important. That's why God hates divorce. Then one more time, he's going to say, you have wearied me with your words. That's his assertion. When our boys were young, we used to put their mouths in timeout. Your mouth is in timeout. You're wearying me with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied you? (laughs) In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where's the God of justice? God doesn't care. It doesn't matter if you do good or evil. God doesn't care. He hasn't been active. He's not been doing all of these things. We don't see justice on every hand. I see people getting away with all kinds of things. God must not care. His justice isn't seen. Here's his response. I'm going to send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. Um, This messenger, uh, we find out in the New Testament in Matthew, is John the Baptist. Um, but, But kind of like that rock skipping, there's a messenger who comes before the first coming. That's John the Baptist. There's going to be a messenger who comes before the second coming. He's going to get there in chapter 4 of Malachi, and that's a a prophet like, like Elijah. Because John the Baptist is going to say, I'm not that Elijah, I'm a different one. I'm preparing the way for his first coming, not for his second coming. So God's going to send a messenger to prepare the way. And the Lord whom you speak, now we're talking about the Lord, we're talking about Jesus here. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, that's Jesus, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. Is that really your delight? Is the coming of the Lord really your delight? Now we get back to that hope thing. Is your hope in this life or your hope in what God is going to do in the future? Is him coming to the temple the first time to redeem us and coming back to that temple that will be rebuilt? Is that your hope? Is that your delight? Or is your delight in what's happening right in front of you? And he'll purify the sons of Israel. He's going to come and judge them. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. God's going to make everything right because he's going to bring about the revival and purify him. And he says this, where will, you're robbing me. <laughs> How have we robbed you? In your tithes and offerings. Um, you're not being faithful in your giving. So before we go any further, I'm going to stop here and just say, and we're not talking about 10%. Don't, don't give me any of this, oh, you should give 10%. I tell people never give 10%. That's legalistic. Give 9 or 11, okay? Give 9 or 11, and then ask God if, if you should increase that. Um, I, I would encourage you, don't try to figure out 10%. 9 or 11, because, and you should be happy with me when I say 9 or 11, if you factor the tithes in in the Old Testament, you calculate them, it's between 22 and 27%. So, okay, 9, 11, if you don't like that, 22, 27, I, it's okay. If you want to give 22% of your income to the Lord, that's okay. I don't think any of that really counts, though. Because we're under a new covenant. And it's all different. It's not how much you should give. 9, 11, 22, 27, none of that matters. Dr. Ross captures this really well when he says this. In the New Testament stewardship, the economic system and the outlook are totally different. 
So we do not ask how much we should give, but rather how much we can keep and what we are to do with it. Because everything we have and everything we are belongs to God and is given to us in trust. How much is yours? None of it. How much belongs to him? Every freaking bit of it. 100 freaking percent is his. The question is this, how much do you pray and say, God, how much of that do you want me to keep? Do you want me to live on 90% and I'll give you 10%? Okay, if you feel comfortable with that, go for it. But it's all his. He purchased you with his own life. And now we belong to him and everything we have has been given to us to be stewards of to use for him. So the question isn't, do I give 9, 10, 11, 22, or 27%? It's all his. How does he want you to use it? Some of it should pay your taxes. Some of it should pay your bills. Some of it should buy your food. And some of it should support the work of the Lord in things you believe in. And he says this, prove uh, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up to you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Prove God. That's what this passage says. Prove him. Try. Try your 9, 10, 11, 22, 27, 100. Prove God. And I'm going to tell you from my own life, when you're faithful to the Lord, he will bless you in inexplicable ways. Not ways that you have to manipulate, but things you look back and you go, how in the world did that happen? Um, God will bless you if you're a faithful steward. That's not prosperity gospel. That's Malachi 3.10. God will bless you. I don't know how. It's not a one-to-one correspondence. He may not give you money. He may give you things you had no idea you were going to end up with. Peace, joy, satisfaction, opportunities. I mean, one of the things for me is this. How in the world did I make a choice to come to Conway, Arkansas, and now I travel all around the world on mission trips? Who would have thought? What a blessing. Be a good steward of your resources, and God will bless you. And they got it. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord, who esteem his name. They sat down and they said, yes, God has been faithful. They started off, he's loved us. That's right, he's loved us. And even though we've messed up in all of these different ways, our priests are leading us astray, and we've messed up our marriages, and we haven't given proper offerings to the Lord, God's still been patient with us, and he's given us an opportunity to repent. Let's write down how God has been faithful, and they write this book of remembrance out to help remind them how God has been faithful. And then he reminds them, he's going to come in judgment. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a fire, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. God's going to burn it all down. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. The sun is going to rise and there'll be healing when he comes. Reminds me of one of my favorite things that happens in the Lord of the Rings in the books, not the movies. Um, When Aragorn, the king, shows up, uh, Gandalf says this, for it is said in old lore, the hands of the king are the hands of the healer. And so the rightful king could ever be known. Here's how you know when the king is king of your life, there's healing in your life. 
Maybe not physical healing, but your, your relationships are restored. You have hope, even in the midst of sickness. You have hope, you have joy. The king is really ruling when there's healing abounding. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. It was John the Baptist, but there's going to be another one who's going to come. Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. God's going to bring this to another coming, another advent, when Christ will come back. So what do we do with all this? I'm going to take the time to do this. <laughs> I'll skip everything else. So worship team, you guys come on out. This is how I'm going to end. Joyce Baldwin says this. Whereas most of the prophets lived and prophesied in days of change and political upheaval, Malachi and his contemporaries were living in an uneventful waiting period when God seems to have forgotten his people, enduring poverty and foreign domination in the little province of Judah. Zerubbabel and Joshua, whom Haggai and Zechariah had indicated as God's chosen men for the new age, had died. True, the temple had become completed, but nothing momentous had occurred to indicate that God's presence had returned to fill it with glory as Ezekiel had indicated would happen. The day of miracles had passed with Elijah and Elisha. The round of religious duties continued to be carried out, but without enthusiasm. Where was the God of their fathers? Did it really matter whether one served him or not? Generations were dying without receiving the promises, and many were losing their faith. This is our time and our day and time. People are, are, are waiting. They're not seeing God active, and they're losing their faith, and they're just focusing on the lives around them. Malachi's prophecy is particularly relevant to the many waiting periods in human history and in the lives of individuals. He enables us to see the strains and temptations of such times, the imperishable, the imperishable abrasions of faith that end in cynicism because it has lost touch with the living God. Even more important, he shows the way back to a genuine, enduring faith in the God who does not change, who invites men to return to him, and never forgets those who respond. This book is for people who are waiting, who don't see God necessarily active, the times are not what you were hoping they would be. They're not what they um, were. And you're caught in the middle. And are you going to let yourself get distracted? Or are you going to remember, God loved me, chose me, protected me. He's provided for me. He's coming back to set everything right. And that is my hope. And you, do you remember that's the message of Malachi. Very straightforward, very pointed, but reminding us God loves at the, at the beginning. He's coming back for us. How are we going to respond? Father, thank you for this clear, powerful, sometimes brutal, convicting message. <laughs> but Lord, at the heart of it is your love for us, your faithfulness to us, your love for us enough to tell us the truth. So many of us don't like to hear the truth. We just like to be encouraged and affirmed. And um, Lord, your, your grace doesn't allow for that. Your grace um, delivers messages like Malachi to us. But Father, at the core of it, you start and you end with your love for us. And so Father, I pray that our hearts would be aligned with you. And I pray that in Christ's name.